Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't remember when I first heard the story. I don't remember when I first became aware that I knew the story, but I know it happened young. I think most children growing up, when I grew up, this was their experience. They learned this story when they were little. They learned this story when they were young. Regardless of whether they went to church or not, regardless of their race or religion. If they grew up in our country in the early 70s, the mid-70s, they learned the story. And I'd venture to dare say that even today, kids still learn this story early on. It may not be taught by, uh, as far as the older generations are concerned, in the same way. It might be more nuanced. There's wars and arguments about how this should be taught. But I have no doubt it's still taught in our schools. The story I'm speaking of is the Revolutionary War, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I'll never forget as a child, I actually remember, I think in kindergarten or first grade, I was going to Clayton Elementary School in Inglewood, Colorado. And I remember I drew a picture of Bunker Hill. You know, my interpretation, stick figures, uh, some stick figures had red, some stick figures had blue. I was for the blue team even then. (laughs) Did not like the red team, even way back then. Of course, I didn't realize it was the human Indians we were fighting. (laughs) No, it was the redcoats, obviously, the British. And I remember these stories from when I was a child, hearing about the revolution, hearing about the foundation of our nation, hearing the story of how our nation began. Do you remember when you heard those stories? Some of you can't remember when you heard those stories because it's been a while. And I find that it becomes a little more in the misty, dreamy past for me every year. And I think every nation... Every country instills in their citizenry, their citizenship, the story of how the nation begun, how it happened, how it started, who the heroes were, where the major battles were, who signed what and when. And I think most nations have some sort of national holiday that commemorates that day. And they remember. I remember in Denver People celebrating Cinco de Mayo, a celebration of the Mexican Day of Independence. Every nation seems to have this experience. And it's even true of the Jewish people. Of course, they were established a really long time ago. Pre-mortal history was when they started. You see, every little Jew, every little Jewish boy, every little Jewish girl knew the story. They had heard it when they were young. They had even acted out parts of it at family meals. They had sat around on Papa and Mama's knees and they had heard the stories spoken. They remembered. 
It's interesting because even their national founding story has become a familiar story to people around the world. It's become a familiar story because Christians see it as a significant founding story for them. Jews obviously see it as a significant story for them. And even Muslims see it as a significant story for them. Three major religions trace their way back to this story. And it's a fascinating story. And it's the backdrop for the entire story of the Bible. The whole trajectory of the scriptures begins here. It's an unfolding of a major theme in scripture. My guess is you may not be aware of some of the threads in this story. One of the things I want to do this year during Christmas season is to remind us because we often can get stuck in sentimentality and nostalgia when it comes to Christmas. And that's good and that's okay. But if that's all we have in Christmas, then we're going to stop with Santa and Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman. That's all it will be is a nostalgic, sentimental holiday where we try to be nice to people, except when we're shopping, fighting traffic, waiting in line at Starbucks. Oh, wait, we don't have one. We don't have many lines. Maybe that's why we live here. But it's a time of year that we can easily think that there is more meaning than there is. And it's a time of year that we forget what really is meaningful. Because our vision, our thoughts, our ideas get clouded with ceremony and ritual and gatherings and CBS holiday specials. And what I want us to do is, is trace a theme trace a a thread that is woven in scripture, one that you might not have seen, one that is so significant to this story, this Christmas story, and I hope it'll take on new life. I hope that at some point this morning, there will be like a wow experience for you because some of you look cynical today. (laughs) Some of you have decided that Christmas really is for kids. And all I'm going to get is a lump of coal or a box of chocolates. Let's look at this founding story that all these Jewish kids knew by heart. It starts off in Genesis chapter 2. This is the founding, the beginning of the story of the children of Israel, of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read this. And my version is going to be a little different to you because somebody stole my Bible, it seems. If you did it, fess up. Uh, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the promises of God, Yahweh, to Abram. That's his name at this point. It hasn't been changed, but you know him as Abraham. Because God renames him. And these are the promises that God gives Abram. 
And this is the beginning of the people. He calls Abram out. He is not yet a Hebrew. He's, a land, he's in the land of Ur, the Chaldees. He will leave that land. He will go to a land God shows him. If we keep reading in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, if you like to circle, highlight, underline pieces of your Bible, did you see what part you should? It's the part where it says, the Lord appeared. Did you pay attention there? Did you hear that in the national story of the Jews? The Lord appeared. What do you think that means? Uh, Don't you hate those Bible study workbooks where they ask you, what does the word appeared mean? And you're like, appeared? Didn't you hate that in school when a teacher was like, now in your own words, appeared, Uh, saw, showed up, was there? You see, sometimes we read these things and we think, oh, I know this story. I've been here. I've been coming to church since I was, I've been coming to church since I was in the womb. I have proof today. My mom's here. She can tell you. (laughs) And you've heard these stories so many times, but did you see that before? The Lord appeared. Now use your imagination for a moment. How does a spirit being appear? What does that look like? Because we learn elsewhere in Scripture, God is spirit. But we see throughout the Old Testament what I learned in seminary, a 25-cent word, theophanies. Theophanies. Appearances of God. We find throughout the Old Testament that God would appear to people. The Hebrews, starting here in Genesis 12, you may have never heard this before, but they developed a theology called the two powers in heaven theology. And the two powers in heaven theology, they believed there was the invisible Yahweh the one that you can't see, the one that is what we'd call the Father. And then there is the visible Yahweh, the one who appears, the one who takes on the appearance of a person. Perhaps you've been in church all your life and you haven't heard this, you haven't wrestled through this, you didn't see this. But here we find the Lord appeared to Abram. Talk about a foundation story. That would have been a cool scene for a kindergartner to draw. And the Lord appeared to Abram. In chapter 15, we get the same story. It's reiterated. It's told again. And the circumstances are a little bit different because Abram is like 100 years old and he doesn't have a kid yet. His wife is 90. He's lost the hope. He's thinking, God has said... My family is going to be a blessing to all the nations. Hello, I ain't got no family. He was a little redneck back then. He says this, after this, the word of the Lord, what's the word? Came to Abram 
in a vision. If you like to circle, highlight, underline things, that's the part of this. You should circle, highlight, underline. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. I always thought this was auditory because the word, word, right? Doesn't the word, word make you think it's just a word? But the scriptures, if you read it, and that's what we're doing, says he came to him in a vision. So I guess it was like a piece of paper and God wrote it down for him. Words. Really? You think that's what's going on? Earlier in chapter 12, we saw the Lord appeared to Abram. Here we see that the word of the Lord appeared, came to him in a vision. And he says what? Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your very great reward. Some of you need to hear that today because you are scared and you need a shield. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. We got like a Downton Abbey situation going on here. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, circle, highlight, underline this part. He took him outside. How does an auditory thing take you outside? I guess it could be like a field of dreams situation where, you know, some crazy farmer has been out in the field too long in the hot sun. And he starts hearing voices. If you build it, they will come. Okay. How does... A word take you outside. How does something auditory take you outside? How does something auditory appear to you? He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. That's a little, you know, if you can count them. (laughs) God has a sense of humor. You need to know that. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He took him outside. You see, the Hebrews, they understood this. The the commentators, the Hebrew commentators in the Midrash, they wrote about this and they said, God appeared to Abram. That was their national founding story. All the little Hebrew kids knew this. They all knew God appeared to Abram. God showed up. The word of God, the word of Yahweh was present to Abram. And if you think that's an anomaly, this is like the only place this happens, you'd be wrong. And if you read your Old Testament, you'll see time and time and time and time and time and time again that the second power in heaven, as the Jews called it, the visible Yahweh, the visible word of the Lord, or elsewhere it's called the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, this individual again and again and again shows up. In 1 Samuel 3, God is, this is a story that all little Jewish kids knew because it involved a little Jewish kid. And they liked those stories. And I knew this from Sunday school. And there's this little boy, he's trying to sleep, and he keeps hearing voices. Kind of like that farmer out in the field. And he goes to Eli, the priest. He says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And again, he hears Samuel. And he wakes up, Eli, what do you want? I didn't call you, go to bed. And again, he hears it. Samuel, 
He's like, Eli, what are you doing? You keep calling me. And he's like, I did not call you. And then Eli, who's a little slow because he's in the middle of the night and he's trying to wake up. And he says, it's the Lord calling you. Next time you hear it, say, yes, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. And then if you read your Bible closely, it says, Samuel, yes, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. And the Lord came and stood by Samuel. The Lord came and stood. How does a spirit being stand? You need legs to stand, don't you? And then it goes on and it says at the end of of 1 Samuel chapter 3, it tells us that God appeared to Samuel. The word of the Lord regularly appeared to Samuel. We also see in the, the story of Jeremiah being called a prophet. Jeremiah has this crazy, mystical, dreamy experience where he's in the presence of the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. And he says something remarkable. God touched his lips, it says. How do you touch things without hands? It says that the word of the Lord touched, the angel of the Lord touched Jeremiah's lips. And these stories were well known by the Jewish people. Even the kids knew this stuff. It was common discussion in the homes and in the synagogues by the time Jesus comes around. And I wanted to give you this background because we come to this text, our main text today in John chapter 1. And you don't think of John chapter 1 as a Christmas text because it doesn't tell you the narrative of Christmas. It doesn't tell you about the the angel appearing to Mary. It doesn't tell you about Joseph. It does not tell you about wise men. It doesn't tell you about shepherds. There's no angels. This is just boring theological narrative commentary. But it's so important. It's so important because it's like the Holy Spirit inspired John to write these things. So that we would have a view that is different from the others. It would tell us not what's going on. It would tell us what's going on. You see? It wouldn't tell us what's going on. It would tell us what's going on. If you don't get that, you'll get it during the Broncos game at halftime. It's like the Holy Spirit encouraged John, told John, inspired John to say, this is good Bible. Write it down. Print it. And I'm sure John was like, yeah, but mine's not the Hallmark version. (sighs) Okay. When you read this, it's confusing. It's weird. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Question, in your Bible translation on the screen, is Word capitalized? Now, why would they do that? No one's jumping in the fray. I have no idea either. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, having seen Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and thinking about 1 Samuel 3 and Jeremiah's experience, and by the way, a lot of other things, but you want to get out of here at 11, so I left them out. (laughs) Do you read this differently? 
Do you see this differently? The Word. The Word was with God. Not only that, the Word was God. See, John's not like clueless. He was one of those cute little Jewish kids running around the synagogue. John knows the stories. He's a good Jewish boy. He knows the stories. He heard them. He knew that the word showed up. The word showed up to Abraham. The word showed up to Samuel. The word showed up to Jeremiah. The word showed up to Moses. The word showed up to Joshua. The word showed up again and again and again. It showed up. And John's just telling his Jewish readers and through them also, us, the word's showing up. The second person of the Trinity is showing up. But listen to how he shows up this time. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Okay, now he's like giving a little narrative. Changed course on us. How do we know? Because he gave us a paragraph. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, the light we read about in the earlier paragraph so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. John's not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John realized, I might have confused some of you, so let me tell you, these are two different people. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Ever had that experience? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now we learned earlier there was a children of Abraham situation. John's expanding it, children of God. Children born not of natural descent, Abraham and Sarah, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word, now this is the passage that if you like to circle, highlight, underline, is a good one to do. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is a little different revelation than what we've heard in the past, because we've heard that there's this word of Yahweh, dude, that shows up throughout the Old Testament. And it's been a little unclear, ambiguous as to what's going on and who this is and what he looks like and how he functions. But John has the audacity, the inspiration from the Holy Spirit who says, print it, that's good Bible. He has the nerve to say, the word became flesh. Word became flesh. You see, what was not shocking to the Jews was that this would happen. This has happened since the founding of the nation. The word had kept showing up. There's been a gap of silence where the word hasn't shown up for a while, 400 years or so. And everybody's getting a little stir crazy. And it's 
there's a little bit of nationalism because they're a little sick of the Romans. And they want a new king. They want somebody to come in and whip up on them, get them out of there, reestablish Israel. Not only that, they have all these promises in the prophets. All these promises, not only in the prophets, they have them clear back in the national story, Genesis 12. You will be a blessing. Those who dishonor or curse you, I will curse. Well, God, Romans are busy cursing us. And they're wondering. They're waiting. And John says, your wait is over. The word has become flesh. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that he's become flesh? Well, there's a couple things it means. One is he's become vulnerable. How did Jesus show up? We've got a, an illustration right here for us. A baby. They're pretty helpless, clueless, vulnerable. They need a bit of assistance. Their whole life is dependent on others. And that's how God, Yahweh, the word of the Lord, showed up. Doesn't that just boggle your mind? That the word of God would show up vulnerable as a baby? For goodness sakes, poor Mary and Joseph. I mean, I was just nervous as all anything with my firstborn. Could you imagine holding the word? The word became flesh. He's embraceable. You can squeeze his little cheeks. He's cute and you can rock him to sleep. The word of Yahweh. And I don't care what they sing. No crying he makes. Come on, moms. You know that ain't true. The word. You know what this ultimately means is the world, the word becoming flesh means the word became killable. Could kill it. Herod tried. Early on, the family was running for their lives. They became refugees in Egypt. Fleeing for their lives. You'd do the same. Especially if an angel told you. And good thing he did, because Herod killed all the kids in the Bethlehem village and vicinity who were two years and under. They couldn't find Jesus. The word was killable. They had to flee. They had to run away. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed forever, he was there and he appeared To Abraham, he was even questioned about this by the Pharisees. And they're like, what, are you greater than Abraham? They were having this argument about the nation, laws, and stuff. People do that a little bit. And Jesus says, I am greater than Abraham. And they're like, what? How dare you say that? You're just a mere man, a mere mortal. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's bad grammar, right, Jesus? Bad grammar, amazing theology. 
Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has always existed. And then this Jesus comes in the flesh, a baby, and he's now killable. One thing you need to know, Christianity is the only religion that would have the guts. That's not us having guts. It's God having guts. Christianity is the only religion that would teach you, that would affirm that God drew near to you. Christianity is the only religion that would say to you that God became vulnerable, that God risked everything, that Jesus, when he was in heaven and he knew that this was the assignment, he decided, yeah, it's worth the risk. I will take on the risk. I'll be vulnerable. I'll be killable. Not only that, he knew that it would cost him his life, this mission. And he was glad to do it. For you. For me. The word became flesh. Now, I want to think about this idea of flesh for a little bit longer. One of the titles of Jesus, we sing it at this time of year, is Wonderful Counselor. And if you're not meditated upon this, you might want to spend some time thinking about this today and in the days to come. But you know who Wonderful Counselors are? Wonderful Counselors are people who have been there, done that, and now helping you through it. Did you get that? Wonderful Counselors are people who have been there, done that, help you now, and now helping you through it. And that's why Jesus, I don't think that's, I think that's why he lived a life instead of just died as a baby. Because you can't be a wonderful counselor unless you've been there, done that, and now you can help others through it. And one of the amazing pieces in what the meaning of Christmas is, is that Jesus saw us, heard us, our struggle, our cries, our violent world, our terrible governmental systems, our greed, how we hurt and abuse and beat up one another. He saw that and he said, I will be subject to it. I will be subject to it. So like Syrian refugees, Jesus has been there, done that. He can counsel them. You've been betrayed by somebody? Jesus was betrayed. We have a phrase for it, a Judas kiss. He's been there, done that. He's got the t-shirt. He can counsel you through it. You've been rejected by friends? He's been there, done that. You've been spit upon, beat up, hit, abused, falsely accused? Have relationship issues, struggles? This is what the word became flesh means. It gives us hope. It gives us understanding that Jesus came and he did that. He lived it. Now he can help us through it. You might be thinking, well, it sounds like to me, pastor, like I'm just supposed to pray and that'll make everything better. And I have been praying and I do believe that, but it's not making it better. And the cool thing is Jesus experienced that too. Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that the next day he was going to die on a cross. That was the plan. That's why he showed up, part of it. And that night he is pleading with God in prayer. So 
sincerely praying that he's sweating. You ever broken up in a sweat as you pray? I mean, this is like an athletic experience for Jesus, this prayer. He is pleading with God, if there is any other way other than me dying, let's explore those other options. Uh, you ever been in a foxhole? You ever been in a, between a rock and a hard place and you've thrown out some prayers? Okay, God, let's come up with a new plan. Not like in this one. And you ever heard crickets in response from heaven? That's what Jesus experienced. He's been there, done that. He can walk with you through it. Finally, John uses this word dwell. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among you. And this was a very cool word. It's a word that little Jewish kids would have read and gone, that's a cool word. Why would they have thought that? Because there's all sorts of words in the Greek. There's all sorts of words in English that you can use to make it clear that somebody moved into the neighborhood, got close to you, showed up, is nearby, is now appearing. But the word John uses is the word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used to uh, translate the word tabernacle. Huh? You know, church is a weird place because they got all these weird words and I don't know what to do. If you're new here, we apologize for all the weird words. But get this. The tabernacle was a tent that was built at God's direction. He gave the plans to Moses. And he told Moses, build this thing. It's the tabernacle. It's where my presence will reside. It's where my word will dwell. You can get these concepts. It's throughout the Old Testament. This dwelling place of God is the tabernacle. And that is the background. And that that is the word. And John wanted your brain to just explode with all that Old Testament history when you read this word and you went, tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? It's the place where you meet God. That's the place where God dwells. That's the place that has special places. That's sacred space that you and I can't go into because we ain't all that. That's the place that we offer sacrifices. That's the place where the priest goes. That's the place where all these religious duties and ceremonies and rituals, that's where they all happen is the tabernacle. I think what John is saying here is Jesus has come to change religion. I would go a step further. Jesus has come to end religion as you know it. You see, the early peoples, they had temples. They had pagan temples, Jewish temples. Everybody had temples. Do you know which group didn't have a temple? Christians. And do you know how weird that was back then? By the way, this is not a temple. This is not a sacred space. This is not a place, you know, where the only place in Ray that God is ever, you know, you can run in this place. Moms, if you're fighting that battle with your kid, talk to me about it later. This is not a temple. We don't have them. Because we had one. We don't have tabernacles. We don't have temples. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have priests. And when you were hanging out with your pagan neighbor, drinking some mead, I think that's what they drank. Wine, probably. Because you wouldn't touch the water. That stuff was nasty. And 
filter filtrations didn't happen yet. You're sitting there, you're visiting over the fence with your pagan neighbor, and they say, hey, uh, notice you weren't out doing, attending to your lawn yesterday. What's up? Uh, yeah, man, I, I, was, I, was, I was doing this, this church thing. Church thing, like assembly, meeting? What is that? Yeah, I went to a meeting thing. What do you do at your meetings? Well, it's, we're following Jesus. Oh, yeah, I heard about that guy. Hey, uh, so like this is religion? Is that what this is? Well, yeah, kind of, kind of religious thing. So like where's your temple at? Where do you guys meet? Where's your temple? Uh, we don't really have a temple. We just, go to, we just go to Fred's house. Fred's house? Yeah, Fred's house. Okay, uh, when you're at Fred's house, uh, what do you do? Well, we break bread and drink wine and remember Jesus and we read some books and we talk and we sing some praise songs and sometimes people get wet. We dunk people and um, that's, that's what we do. That's what you do at Fred's house. You eat and you take baths <laughs> and sing songs about eating and taking baths. And Jesus, yeah, we do that. I guess that's what we... So, you don't have a priest? No, we just all show up and some of us have ideas to share and somebody received a letter from Paul who's in prison again and we read those things. Okay? So that's what you do at Fred's house instead of a temple and you have no priests that are in charge of the thing to get you right with God. No, we don't, we don't have a priest. Uh, okay, well, tell me about sacrifices. Clearly, you have to appease the God in some way. Clearly, I mean, I've seen... Your lawn, it's looking amazing. You know, how did you get it looking like that? Clearly the gods are on your side. How did you do that? You must offer some amazing sacrifices. How does that work? And Yeah, we don't have sacrifices. Like I said, we eat and drink and sing songs and pray and have a short time of talking. And it's a good time. You have no sacrifices? Uh-uh, we don't have any of that stuff. Okay, I'm starting to think you're a part of a cult or something, man. I don't get what you're doing. Doesn't sound like religion. Sounds like some kind of club. That would have been the dilemma of Christians in the early days. And why was this a dilemma? Because Jesus is the temple. Not only that, the New Testament says, y'all are the temple. Not only that, it says you individually and y'all are the temple. Not only that, it tells us that Jesus is the priest. And it goes a step further and says, y'all are the priests. Every single one of us who follows Jesus is a priest. Not only that, it says Jesus is the sacrifice. And it goes even a step further and it says, consider yourselves a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. All these things Jesus is and we are supposed to be. And that is the religion, that is, the, that is what Jesus established for us. And we find this all in John chapter 1, when we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Christmas. <coughs> Give Santa the boot, if he causes you to forget what this is about. Kick reindeers to the curb, if you forget what this means. 
get rid of presents and stockings and all of the trappings that rhymed. Get rid of eggnog. Get rid of Christmas cards and carols. Unless they help you focus on the second person of the Trinity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I pray in doing that we will have a brilliantly merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work at transforming us with these transforming words. Help us to remember that Jesus Christ lived this amazing life for us. Help us remember that Jesus died this horrific death for us. Help us to see what the king is up to. Help us, each of us, to experience an appearance of the word of God in our lives. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May Christ, the Prince of Peace, be your peace. May Christ, the wonderful Counselor, walk you through what you're going through. May we all know the word has put on flesh and is dwelling among us. Amen.